Welcome to Planttopia. I'm your host, David Godori, and I'm a plant pathologist at Cornell University. Any listeners who have never met a real live plant pathologist can be forgiven. We are a very low visibility, but very high impact profession. We protect the world's food supply from disease-causing fungi, bacteria, viruses, and nematodes, all of which want to eat your lunch. This time on Planttopia. For each resistance gene in the plant, there is a gene in the pathogen that determines if the pathogen will be able to injure the plant or cause disease. Winston Churchill said, we shall fight on the beaches. We shall fight on the landing grounds. We shall fight in the fields and in the streets. We shall fight in the hills. We shall never surrender. In today's episode, we'll take another look at an ongoing war between plants and microbes and how plants are able to resist all but a very few microbes who seek to exploit them. The, the plants want to survive and the pathogen wants to survive as well. The idea is to understand um, how these resistance genes evolve in the field in comparison to a particular pathogen. To resist is the rule, and susceptibility in many cases is an exceptional contest of subterfuge at the genetic level between plants and pathogens. Today on Plantopia, we're covering the microscopic battlefields and how plants resist, and how far we've come in understanding the strategies employed by both sides in this conflict. Hi, I'm Shavanor Smith. I am an associate professor in the Department of Plant Pathology at the University of Georgia in Athens, Georgia. The concept of host resistance has been around for a long time. The, the genetics of the host as kind of the, the, the blueprint for how they relate to a variety of microbial pathogens. What's changed in the last Hundred years. Can you bring us up to date? Um, sure. So I, I, I talk about this quite a bit with my students in um, the course, well, courses that I teach that really go through a timeline to give them a better perspective of, of what's going on. And, and so, really, one of the main discoveries over, well, the last 10 years has been um, the cloning of, of many different resistance genes as well as their corresponding resistance genes and looking at how the arginine proteins and uh, from the plant and these effector molecules from the pathogen, how they interact. And that has really given us uh, a really good idea of, of mechanism um, in regards to the plant, how it's able to, to defend itself against the pathogen, and how the pathogen and the plant and these arginines from the plant and the effectors from the pathogen are able to co-evolve. So, so those have been really some of the, the main um, things that have occurred in the past few years or so that has really directed um, our knowledge um, for improving resistance. So what's an R gene? Is this something developed by pirates or uh, <laughs> an R gene? How does it work? So um, a resistance gene is a, a gene that is, is in the plant. 
And um, what it does is the resistance gene has the ability, the protein um, has the ability to recognize directly or indirectly um, these corresponding effector molecules from um, the pathogen. And so, so effectors are, are most typically proteins that are delivered um, by the pathogen. And so you can imagine it's, it's like a lock and key. If the plant has an R gene and it recognizes the appropriate effector molecule, then this activates plant defenses and it allows the plant to be resistant. So the pathogen's a bit like a burglar, uh, like almost like a cat burglar trying to break into the plant undetected. And if it can get in there undetected, uh, it has a better chance of being successful. In fact, it has the only chance of being successful. Absolutely. And and that's really what's so cool about looking at these mechanisms between uh, the plant and the pathogen, right? Where if the pathogen, the plant has the appropriate R gene, um, and this R gene is able to be maintained in the pathogen population over time, and it recognizes this effector, then, then the plant is able to defend itself against those particular effectors in that particular pathogen for an extended period of time. So that means whatever the genotype that you have, whether you're dealing with corn or soybean or rice or maize, that particular genotype becomes uh, resistant over time in the field. And that's really what we want. So there's a tremendous diversity of, of plants that we grow. There's an equally impressive diversity of pathogens from viruses and bacteria and fungi. Most of these are somewhat specific. And in fact, resistance is more or less the rule. Um, a pathogen from apple that lands on uh, celery doesn't necessarily have the ability to infect. Grape powdery mildew doesn't infect apple. Apple powdery mildew doesn't infect strawberry. It's only grape powdery mildew is only a pathogen when it lands on grape. So what is the basis of resistance in non-hosts? Why are they able to resist so many of these pathogens so effectively, potential pathogens, and not others? Is it just the R genes? Um, well, no, it's not just the R genes, but you, that is an age-old question that you have just asked that... Um, well, I've been around for a while. <laughs> <laughs> that, that, that question has, has really been around, as you know, for a while. And that we don't really know um, the mechanisms actually that control non-host resistance. We know that it is um, the broadest type of resistance that we see um, in regards to controlling resistance, non-host, right? And then you go to host resistance. But really understanding the mechanism, um, many times it's, it's thought of as being developmentally regulated. Um, but again, there are still many questions surrounding how host plant resistance actually works. Well, developmentally, meaning the development of the plant or its aging or maturation, that would be called ontogenic resistance? Yes. So I'm familiar with one form of that, and that's, again, in, in grapevine, where uh, 
juvenile tissues are highly susceptible. And, and this is something that's seen in a lot of different plants where young tissues are susceptible, young organs are susceptible, leaves, fruit, and so on. And yet, in some cases, uh, they get to a certain age. And sometimes it's almost like a switch is flipped. They transition very quickly from highly susceptible to almost immune to infection. And in the case of grape powdery mildew, what happens is the spore lands, germinates, it tries to infect, it forms a small penetration peg, it gets almost all of the way through the cuticle, and then it just seems to give up. It just stops. And we've never really figured out why it does that, but it seems that it just never gets the cue to proceed to the next step, which would be to actually puncture the cell wall and get inside the cell. It just more or less gives up. So what do you think is going on there? Well, I think in, in this case and many cases dealing with, with this type of resistance, um, there is um, signaling that that happens when in in any type of these interactions and um these types of resistance are highly regulated and so when you don't have the appropriate genes that are turned on when you don't have the appropriate signaling pathways that are turned on then you're able to move forward with whether it be this type of resistance and it's also very similar in host resistance as well so the signal might not be there uh, on day 11, but it could be there on day 13. Absolutely. And there, there are some evidences of that, especially with um, um, wheat rust um, as well. And so that's where um, some of the, the notions have come from where um, there is developmental regulation that's associated with this in regards to the plant. So it would be fair to say that all plants have the capacity to resist a pathogen. It's just a question of whether or not pathogen makes them use it? Yes. So, and, and so you can imagine that, right? If you think, for example, there have been, um, if, if we're talking about resistance genes, there have been resistance genes that have been transferred from um, rice um, into maize. And that those particular genes function uh, appropriately in, in, in rice. And you get defenses, plant defenses activated, and then those genotypes are resistant. However, when you move that particular cognate resistance gene into um, um, a heterologous species, it doesn't function. And so the idea, which they've demonstrated quite a bit, is that um, now that it's in a heterologous species, that particular plant species does not have all of those other genes that are involved in signaling for that particular gene to function. So I'm used to dealing with uh, plant diseases at the population level as an epidemiologist. I'm, I'm looking at uh, diseases moving through a, um, large acreages of plants and spreading. Other people, uh, you being one of them perhaps, would be looking at something below the cellular level and at the molecular level. What is the application of the molecular plant pathology, the molecular resistance of plants to the suppression of diseases at the population level. So that's that's pretty much what 
keeps most of us in, employed <laughs> that, that that work in this area um, because so so the idea when you're looking at the population level if ideally if if you're working on a particular um, crop plant for example maize your goal is to be able to deploy or have genotypes in the field um, as I mentioned earlier that are resistant to um, invasive pathogens over time and so the idea is to understand um, how these resistance genes evolve in the field in comparison to a particular pathogen. So let me give you an example. So, for example, if I am working on maize and I have my maize genotype in the field, I am I want to know um, the genotypes that are present in that particular cultivar and how it is be able to maintain in the field. And I also compare that with looking at the pathogen. For example, if I'm looking at a rust pathogen, I want to look at the genetic diversity of the R genes in the host plant and the genetic diversity of the effector molecules in the pathogen and able to determine, will my particular R gene be able to be um, resistant in the field over time? Um, and that goes back to um, the zigzag model, um, which is really the central dogma for molecular plant interactions. Um, and that was proposed by Jones and Dangle back in 2016. And so with that, it allows you to understand really how the R genes and the effector molecules interact and how they evolve over time. And what does the zigzag model tell us? So it, it, it really demonstrates the coevolution of the R gene and the effector molecule. So, for example, um, if you're looking at effector triggered susceptibility, then that means the pathogen is able to produce effectors that the R genes in the in the plant is unable to recognize. Right. So plant defenses is not activated. You have um, susceptibility. Now, their, their survival of the fittest here, the, the plants want to survive and the pathogen wants to survive as well. So in response to this effector triggered susceptibility, then you have these R genes in the plant that can evolve and change where it can now recognize these effectors. And that results in activation of plant defenses, and that is called effector-triggered immunity. And then this process occurs over and over, effector-triggered immunity, effector-triggered um, susceptibility, and that is the result of the coevolution of the R gene in the plant and the effector molecule in the pathogen. Do they ever run out of options or does the process become more difficult as it proceeds? Yeah, so that's that's a really good question. So um, so what the breeders typically want to do is they want to identify as many resistance genes as they can that could potentially um, be effective against um, these effector molecules in the pathogen of interest. And so, yes, you can get to a point where uh, you do not or have not been able to identify resistance genes that are effective. And that has been occurring more often. And so what we have started to do and what I'm doing with some of my systems is now we're looking at wild progenitors, right? We're looking at 
um, while progenitors in order to be able to potentially identify other sources of resistance that um, you we don't identify um, any longer in um, cultivated species. So you're talking about going back to the center of origin for some of our crop plants. Right, right. So and, and it makes sense, right? Because um, right, as I mentioned, you have the coevolution of of the plant and the pathogen currently in this current environment. However, going back to these wild ancestors, they have not been in that environment with these current pathogens. So they often have just a, a arsenal of, of uh, potential resistance genes that can be used against um, the current uh, pathogen population. Along these lines of, of uh, a host plant running out of options for dealing with an aggressive pathogen, is this something like what happened with UG99 and, uh, and wheat rust? Uh, where it initially, at least, this was a fairly fearsome prospect. It didn't necessarily look like we were going to be able to control this particular pathogen, this strain of the wheat rust pathogen, with the available sources of resistance. Right. That is an excellent example. And so um, that particular resistance gene, they, it was effective in the field for a significant amount of time. And um, so what happened is now you have this new strain, um, UG99, that now that particular plant genotype does not have the appropriate corresponding resistance gene. And so you can see the, the plant can have as many resistance genes as it wants. But if it is not the correct one that is recognized, uh, that is, is, is it's unable to be recognized by the pathogen, then that's when you have these different issues here. Plantopia is brought to you by the American Phytopathological Society, or APS, to honor the United Nations celebration of 2020 as the International Year of Plant Health. Healthy plants can help us solve world hunger, stabilize the world's climate, protect our forests, and add beauty to our lives. Now, back to the show. So there's something called a multi-line cultivar that I've, I wanted to ask you about, and that's a, a mix of resistance genes deployed within individual uh, seed lots that are mixed and then deployed. Uh, and this is sort of a a form of social distancing for for crops where you're never immediately next to someone who has the same resistance profile as you. Is that uh, something that is uh, presently used widely or is it used in just exceptional circumstances? The concern here normally is that when you have a single dominant resistance gene um, that is responsible for the resistance to, to your favorite pathogen, that particular resistance gene over time, uh, because of selection pressure, right? This particular resistance gene is under selection pressure to change over time because of the presence of the pathogen, right? You have a single dominant resistance gene and then you have the pathogen as well. So the idea is to be able to decrease that selection pressure so the pathogen will respond differently. It won't mutate and change as quickly over time when there's um, less selection pressure. So when you have more than one resistance gene, 
that is segregating in your population, or you have these multi lines that are present, you these multi lines have different resistance genes that are present. Okay, so then the pathogen um, has less chance to mutate and change in response to now in the environment, you have more than one resistance gene that is present in that uh, plant cultivar. Is that true in all cases? I mean, if you stack resistance genes in a plant, does it slow resistance all the time or do you run the risk of selecting for multiple resistances in the pathogen population proceeding almost independently of the presence of multiple resistance genes? Well, it does slow the the change of the pathogen because so what what we've often seen is that when you have um, a resistance that has been stable and durable over time, it's because typically these effectors in the pathogen have other functions um, out other important functions um, for it to be able to to survive that it can't mutate or change those particular effector molecules. Um, so that is when you see when it is more stable. But when you do have multiple genes that are present, um, it does or has shown um, in the past where it does slow the pathogen from being able to adapt um, to these more than one resistance genes that are present in the plant population. So there are cases, there is variability. There's no clean, clear cut way of doing this. Um, and so there are examples of each. What's the next five to 10 years going to look like in breeding for resistance? What's, what's really hot now that's going to lead to a breakthrough or has already done so and it's just escaped our attention? Um, well, I think more so in, in the last few years, when sequence analysis, uh, sequencing these, you know, large genomes, high throughput sequencing um, started to come about, then we were able to sequence plant genomes, look at um, the, the structure and evolution of these different resistance genes, and, 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 and being able to correlate that, as I mentioned earlier, with actually what's going on in, in the pathogen. And so quantitative trait resistance has been a way to be able to control resistance um, without using single dominant resistance genes. And so most breeders now are using QTLs to be able to, to control resistance instead of using single dominant resistance genes or using single dominant resistance genes and then um, pyramiding those genes. So in that case, we're looking more at traits of resistance and then that are probably under the control of multiple genes. Yes. Yes. And then we're moving those traits rather than just looking for an individual gene and moving that trait into a plant right. of, of interest. Right. And so we've seen that. I mean, um, for more than 30 years, there are several um, wheat resistance, um, wheat diseases that have been controlled by um, QTL. Um, and they have been and these QTL have been linked um, to each other. And so they segregate. Really, they are linked 
And so they are able to move very well when you're crossing and introgressing these genes into your elite lines. And what's a QTL? That's not, wasn't that an old um, shopping network? (laughs) (laughs) No, not in this case. QTL are, are quantitative trait loci. And so they are really the exact opposite of single dominant resistance genes. So here you have more than one resistance gene that is responsible for controlling resistance in your particular uh, plant cultivar. So if you have a a QTL where three genes are responsible um, for um, resistance, um, the idea is that if one of those genes um, is is mutates or changes and it's unable to be recognized by that particular pathogen, you have two more that are present um, that are able, still able to confer resistance. So it's supposed to be more stable um, than single dominant resistance genes. Um, but there are some, some um, not concerns, but other complications, meaning that as I mentioned earlier, your your quantitative trait lo- loci, or if you have three genes, it would be great to have them linked <laughs> so that when you are moving them into your elite lines, um, you're moving all three genes um, at, at the same time. You know, the, the idea if you're using a single dominant resistance gene, you don't have to worry about any of that. So, so there are trade-offs with both. Can you move the QTLs through conventional breeding or are the methods always involving uh, the development of a transgenic plant? No, absolutely. You can move them with with traditional um, breeding and crossing. And as I mentioned, um, that can be that that is where the challenge comes in. So, for example, if you have um, three genes, three QTL that are located um, that are not located on the same chromosome, they may be located on two different chromosomes and you want to introgress or move them into an elite line, um, that is more challenging, right? You have to, your, your crossing scheme is a bit more involved um, to be able to move them because of course they don't move together. Um, as opposed to, as I mentioned in wheat, um, wheat has been really um, an area that has pioneered um, with having these QTL that are linked and, and moving them um, together and controlling resistance to uh, wheat stem rust and a few other rusts as well. What are you working on now in at Georgia that's, that's really cool? So... I have a few projects that that are that are pretty interesting, and one um, I love rust and um, well, who doesn't? Yeah, they're so <laughs> dynamic. They're so <laughs> dynamic, right? They they have a very fast life cycle, and they're able to move, you know, between states and continents, and they're just so dynamic. And um, being able to, it has been a challenge. Um, working um, in an area where you have to try to understand the mechanisms that plants use to defend themselves against rust and also to maintain a good level of resistance over time because uh, rusts are so dynamic. So um, I work on one area with maize. Um, maize is the predominant crop that I work on. And so we have been working on resistance to Puccinia sorghi. 
which is a rust in maize. And it's a pretty invasive um, rust in maize. And so we have identified some genes in uh, a few lines that I have, resistance genes that confer a good level of resistance, broad spectrum resistance um, to uh, Puccinia sorghi, Puccinia uh, polysora um, as well. The interesting thing is that these resistance genes are what we call recombinant genes, meaning that they have resistance genes from both parents that have created one single dominant resistance gene that has broad spectrum resistance. Is, um, is corn rust uh, a, a disease that's new to North America? No, absolutely not. It's been around for a long time. Um, I actually worked on this particular um, locus RP1, resistance to Puccinia sorghi. I worked on that also as when I was a graduate student. Um, and so it's been a lo- around for, for a long time, um, causing problems in the U.S. and um, internationally for a, a, a very long time, more than 30 years. Wow, I didn't think 30 years was that long a time. Um, <laughs> yeah, I've been, around, I've, I've I've been claiming, around longer than you. I'm claiming to be young. <laughs> it's, it's all relative. <laughs> I guess. Another project that we're um, working on, um, one of my graduate students is working on, we'll also look at, again in maize, um, Eustolago matis. And it is a smut. And... There are no clear resistances to Eustolago matis, but we have identified in a wild progenitor, um, we think it's quantitative. We think that there are several genes within a region on a chromosome. We have identified a line that has resistance to teals to um, Eustolago matis, and both of the parents, the maize parent, I'm sorry, is, um, is susceptible. Right. However, the teosinte parent is resistant. So we've been able to look at and I different members in this population and um, only two members in our population between the cross between teosinte and maize is resistant to Eustolago matis. And it's because of this introgressed region that was identified in those two individuals and in none of the other individuals in that population. If we had a better understanding of the, what's going on underneath the surface with ontogenic resistance and non-host resistance, are the methods available today, for example, CRISPR, where we could actually uh, take advantage of that mechanism in plants at a perhaps earlier stage to make them ontogenically resistant earlier in their lives? Um, Yes, I do. I think CRISPR is really a a phenomenal method within the last few years that has allowed us to do a lot with identifying genes really that are responsible for the resistance or whatever that um, characteristic or trait that that we're interested in. and. I most definitely think it, it can it can be used for that. We're actually going to use that with the last um, project that I mentioned to you, 
where we're going to use CRISPR to actually verify what genes in that introgressed region are actually responsible for the resistance, right? Because there are many genes that are there, but which ones are responsible for the resistance? So we're going to use CRISPR to be able to demonstrate that. And for those in the audience who think that CRISPR might be a breakfast cereal, uh, how does it work? So what CRISPR does is it, it, it is able to knock out particular genes of interest in order for you to verify phenotype. Okay. And it's, it's been used uh, uh, quite a bit um, in, with resistance, uh, also in, in other areas as well with uh, developmental regulation. Um, also looking at genes that are involved in, in signaling and activation of plant defenses. But it is a, it's, it's a technique that we use in the lab in order to be able to knock out genes to determine um, functionality of those individual genes. So you're editing the genome. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Turning things up, down, on, or off. Yeah, that's the easy way to explain it because it's it's really a detailed process. My student has taken a workshop as well to be a, to be able to utilize the technology and I do believe you have to have good hands as well to be able to do it. Little um, tiny fingers I would imagine. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. So, but, but we, we're really interested and this is the first time our lab will be working on this. So we are, um, I am going to send her to another lab as well here to be able to learn the technique and really just to get the hands-on experience, but it's a phenomenal technique and it really has cut down a lot of time that we used to use with other, other editing technologies, um, to be able again, to determine gene functionality. So tell me about H.H. Floor and his contributions to what we know and what we do about resistance in plants. H.H. Um, Floor is really my, my favorite plant pathologist. He was one of the first plant pathologists that I learned about in undergrad, as well as in grad school. And really what I teach um, my graduate students now in my class and in my research. And um, he, He's famous for proposing the gene for gene hypothesis, which describes um, the gene- genetic interaction of the resistance genes that we were talking about and the effector molecules in the plant pathogen. But he did this way before we had any of the knowledge that we have now. So he proposed this model way back in um, 1956 um, when he was doing a study on flax rust. And so he was able to demonstrate that for every resistance gene, that for each resistance gene in the plant, there is a gene in the pathogen that determines if the pathogen will be able to injure the plant or cause disease. So just as a point of reference, that's about the time that the structure of DNA is still being worked out. Right. So you make a very good point. Very little was known. Right. And 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 he was able to based on inoculating um, flax with different races of rust on the same uh, plant to be able to determine that for every resistance gene you're seeing here, there has to be a, a corresponding gene in the plant 
now that we know those are effectors or avirulence genes, that lock and key method that we see, that really was the basis of everything that we know now about host pathogen interactions. And really, um, it is the base model from what all of the other models have, have come from in, that describes how the R genes and the effector molecules interact. So he's my favorite plant pathologist. And really, we would not be where we are today without the work that he did way back in 1956. For more information about the International Year of Plant Health, visit us at plantopiapodcast.org. Thanks for listening. Our show is produced by John Bryce. Thanks also to Mark Gleason, Jim Bradeen, Laura Isles, and Roshni Karate. I'm your host, David Godori, and you've been listening to Plantopia. Plantopia.